At this point in podcast history, I am guessing that you have listened to at least one true crime podcast, if not several. I know I have. But today I'm talking with two hosts of two different true crime shows who are trying to change the genre. I'm John Willen Hill, and from WAMU and PRX, this is Through the Cracks, a podcast about the gaps in our society and the people who fall through them. By me, Connie Walker, and now the disappearance of Jermaine Charlo. John Willen's podcast is called Through the Cracks. It's all about the story of eight-year-old Relisha Rudd. This young black girl who went missing in Washington, D.C. in March of 2014. All kids need a place to play. That's Relisha, in perhaps the only known audio recording that exists of her. How can you have a young girl abducted at a shelter that's run by the city, and apparently she's taken by an employee of the city who works at this shelter? How does that happen before anyone notices? And Connie, she tells the story of Jermaine. The unsolved disappearance of a young indigenous mother from Montana named Jermaine Charlotte. Hi, I'm Jermaine. This is my blog about me. Missoula police are Both of these shows talk about people not usually covered in true crime shows. People of color. So when another missing person case got really big this year, it made both Jonquilin and Connie think about how these cases are covered and thought about, and how much that depends on the background of the person missing. And when I first saw Gabby Petito's, you know, disappearance get the coverage that it did, I thought about Jermaine and thought about all of the similarities. This morning, the desperate father of Gabby Petito appealing to the country for help. And the media attention and the social media attention on Gabby, that that led to, you know, a really big response from law enforcement. Part of our investigation is the potential that something criminal did happen. If that had happened in Jermaine's case, that her family might not have been here three years later, still desperate for any information and still, you know, just heartbroken that they haven't been able to bring her home. Obviously, me and my family want Gabby to be found safe. And I thought about how unfair that was. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And today, which missing persons we care the most about and why? Spoiler alert, it's usually white women. Gabby Petito's case is just the latest example of that. For some reason, in a world where lots of people go missing, not all of them white women, this is a story that caught fire. Really, what is a decision that's being made in newsrooms about whose story is important and whose stories are not important, like very little has changed. On the show today, Jonquilin and Connie join me and talk about why black and indigenous missing persons cases, they just don't get covered in the same way cases about white women often do and how law enforcement plays a role in that, especially when it comes to interacting with the families of missing people of color. Plus, what Jonquilin and Connie are doing to change this coverage through their own work. That's all coming up after the break. What for y'all is the biggest difference in the way Gabby and her case was treated once she went missing compared to the ways the folks in your podcast retreated once they went missing? I think it's like the response, the immediate response that happened as soon as Gabby went missing. It was uh, alarm bells and immediate response from media, response from people, response from law enforcement. Uh, You know, it's such a tragic outcome in spite of that, that she was found, you know, killed. But I think that for families like uh, Jermaine's, 
and releases, like they did not have that response clearly. And and I think that everybody understands and knows that in a missing persons case, those early hours and days are crucial for not only finding the person, uh, but for finding justice. And I think especially like in Jermaine's case, like even getting her reported missing was a struggle that took days. And even after she was reported missing, you know, they had to rely on a nonprofit group to help search for her. And police didn't really begin their investigation in, until like 11 or 12 days after she went missing. There are probably so many differences in terms of the way their cases were handled. But that, I think, was the most glaring yeah. for me at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Jonquilin, biggest difference between Gabby and the way the relationship was treated? I think it's a few things. I mean, I think, again, it's those early days that are really important. But I think also another major factor is the national coverage. I mean, Relisha's mm. story was everywhere in D.C. at the time. Um, and, you know, you'd turn on the TV and it was there locally. But I wasn't seeing it, you know, when I go to a national news outlet. I wasn't seeing it the same way I would see it for a local outlet. And I also... Time will tell with this, but I think longevity might be a factor because I don't know what kind of longevity Gabby Petito's name will still have. But I do know mm. that all these years later, I know Natalie Holloway's name. Mm -hmm. I know John Benet Ramsey's name, and we were born the same year, so she would be about oh, wow. 31 years old now. But And people still ask questions about what happened to her. I could go anywhere in the country and say John Benet Ramsey and people will have something to say. I can't do that with Relisha Rudd's name. And I think that that's a major, major difference. Yeah. What first got both of you interested in the stories that became the focus of your respective podcast? For me, I'm really honest about it. It's the fact that Relisha's a little black girl. And, um, mm. you know, I was once a little black girl. And I just think of yeah. the innocence of that time. Um it was still 2014, but it was months after her disappearance, and I was on my way to work. I live in D.C., and I was on the red line heading from Tinley Town to Union Station because at the time, my job was on the hill. And I remember still seeing her missing poster there. Um, it was mm. worn, and, you know, you could tell it had been there a long time, but I just saw her face, and she had, she had these braids with the barrettes in them. And to me, I just <laughs> – that's so emblematic of childhood and innocence. Mm. And I realize, yeah. you know, it's not for everybody, but to me, like, I just saw her picture, and I could just smell the cocoa butter and the hair grease and just, oh. like, mm -hmm. just playing outside. And – the fact that we still don't know what happened, the fact that so much time had passed, I think really touched me. Everyone deserves to be protected, but little black girls deserve that protection too. And I think often we aren't given that soft place to land, whether you know we're seen as more mm. mature, whether people don't care what happens to us. And I just really wanted to talk about her story mm. in hopes of changing that, at least for someone. Yeah. All right, Connie, same question to you. What first got you interested in the story that you've been covering? You know, it's a very similar story, right, in that um, it's my lived experience as an Indigenous woman that really informs my work. You know, I have to go way back to high school to think about the first time I thought about reporting on this issue of violence against women. And it was when I was, you know, in high school and a, a girl sorry, a young woman um, from a nearby reserve was killed. And her name was Pamela George, and, and she was a young mother of two, and she was 
Um, I didn't know her, but she was from a nearby community, a nearby reserve that I had been to. And I had gone to Palos there when I was a kid. And it was really the way that Pamela's murder was covered in the media that made me think about becoming a journalist. Because Mm. I remember thinking that so much of the attention was actually focused on the two men who were charged in her death uh, instead of Mm. Pamela. You know, there were two white men who were university students And, you know, I knew that they were from middle-class families, and one of them had a dad who taught at the university, and one was a basketball star, and the other was a hockey standout. You know, I'm quoting a a TV news report from the time. And Pamela said, and the victim, an Aboriginal prostitute. Like, they didn't even say her name or say, you know, anything about her life or her family. Mm. And I think that it obviously spoke volumes about the way that journalist thought about Pamela and the way media did. But I also remember feeling, you know, it it spoke to the way that we, our lives were valued in the justice system, especially when they were acquitted of her murder and sentenced to manslaughter. You know, that was the first time I wrote something about, you know, for the local paper. And the first time I thought about becoming a journalist, because I wondered who's in those newsrooms, who's getting to decide. And I think it's a question I I still have, you know, (laughs) all of these years later. Is yeah. is like who Who's is in getting? Of this yeah, stuff? because the, I think yeah. that in a lot of ways this story is a story about the media. Yeah, yeah, I think it because it's not only newsrooms, but it's even just the genre. Because like we are yeah. true crime podcasts. I'm doing air quotes because, and it's not even an air quote. We are true crime podcasts, but even thinking of the way that genre exists like a lot of it is leaning on police officers a lot of it is you know saying you know the bad guy gets caught and we come from communities that have understandably very fraught relationships with law enforcement and so what does it look like when you know they aren't necessarily the hero of the story when you're not necessarily believed and you know that's not necessarily the case for a religious story because metropolitan police once they were aware did mobilize quite the effort but also you know how do you get a victim's family to trust you and to cooperate if mm. historically they have not had a good relationship with you and i think yeah, that's a yeah. really major piece of that as reporters it's kind of be like okay we take the police report at its word this is what we're fact checking against and we're in a place where we can't do that anymore. And I think that's a yeah, factor. You have to question it. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's a major factor well, in how all of this is done. Well, and like what I hear you saying is that like law enforcement should no longer, in every type of case that involves law enforcement, they shouldn't be just assumed to be neutral just because they have badges and uniforms. And so knowing that, I want to ask you both if, there are general differences in the way the justice system treats the cases of missing white girls and women versus women and girls of color. Are there big differences in the way these two types of cases or same types of cases are handled? I mean, I I think so. I I can't think of, I mean, I think that every single family that, that I've talked to who has a loved one who's been missing or murdered you know, say that they've had difficulty in getting law enforcement to take their cases seriously from from the get go. Like, and I I was part of a group at, at CBC where 
we you know, we created this database of, of like over 200 unsolved cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. And we interviewed over 100 families. And, and there was, you know, so many of them talked about this problem with law enforcement, not taking their cases seriously, not investigating properly. And that's, I think that's something that has really been consistent in a lot of the stories that I, I've, I've heard and a lot of families that I've talked to. Her name escapes me now, but I remember hearing the story about a, a woman in Montana whose mom went to the police and they weren't taking it seriously, did, you know, weren't helping her. And she actually started going out and interviewing people and actually trying to find her daughter on her own. And that is something, you know, so many families are put in the position of, of doing. Relisha's Relisha's case is very atypical. And I think because it's so atypical, it highlights what is typical. So a few years back, I think it was 2017, there was the fact that so many black girls were considered missing in D.C. went viral mm. because the Metropolitan Police Department was, you know, tweeting. And they still do I this. Remember they remember that. When, it was like a yeah. thing. Yes. Yeah, they tweet when um, someone goes missing. And, you know, I in my inbox, if there's even a silver alert, if anyone goes missing, um, we're notified. And the reason that it sort of went viral is because it wasn't also announced that a lot of these girls had been found. Mm. But a lot of the conversation around it was that, like, oh, they're runaways. And when someone is considered a runaway – People are like, oh, well, they ran away. So they don't have to report you as missing, right? I mean, like, exactly. This is what I've... Or you may be missing, but they're not going to necessarily really look. <laughs> yeah, the efforts look a lot different. When at the end of the day, like, a child is still not where they're supposed to be. And there's also this question of, okay, well, if so many young black girls are running away in DC, like, what are they running away to or what are they running away from? And how do we fix that? And I think um, there's definitely like, a certain amount of victim blaming when it comes to women and girls of color. Yeah. Well, and you know, when you go into the police department to report someone missing, I mean, we all know this, even from like the Lifetime movies, it's not just like they say, okay, they're going to ask you a bunch of questions. They're going to determine things about the case. And they're going to say things like, well, if this person's a runaway or has a history of drug use or other crime, we might not classify them as missing. Uh, we might be slower to start looking for them. And we know that those arbitrary and subjective value judgments are often, without even people realizing it, affected by race. Absolutely. And I think that especially like within indigenous communities, there's also the the whole history of the relationship between police and communities that you also have to contend with, you know, like in the first podcast that I did, which uh, for CBC, which, which was missing and murdered and focused on the unsolved murder of a young woman named Alberta Williams um, in northern British Columbia off the Highway of Tears, which is an area where a number of women have gone missing or been found murdered over the years. Um, when we first went to look into Alberta's case, you know, we were talking to people uh, within a few days who had never spoken to police about what they knew about uh, the weekend that Alberta went missing and who had never spoken to police about, about any of it in 27 years. Uh, but were talking to us. And so, you know, as part of the podcast, we were examining the role of the RCMP within Indigenous communities and that they were, you know, actually a police force that was created to kind of quell the native resistance to colonization to in Canada. 
and and who sometimes were used to help force children into residential schools uh, when when it was, um, you know, when they were still in operation and, and Indigenous families were forced to send their children there or when they ran away from those residential schools because of the widespread abuse that they were experiencing, it was sometimes the RCMP who were called to take them back, you know? And I think that all of that context and all of the history that these that our communities have with police are still affecting, you know, people's reluctance to, to cooperate or come forward or trust law enforcement. When we come back, are true crime podcasts part of the problem? What does the data look like on who's missing, how, why, where, and when, and what groups of people are more likely to go missing. I do know that there are a lot of holes in this data, particularly when it comes to folks from marginalized backgrounds. Yeah, um, the numbers can be really difficult, but I do know that in 2019, there was this data put out that over a third of missing children are black, which may not seem like a lot, but when you think about the fact that at least at the time, they accounted for 14% of the population of kids. That's quite a bit. Yeah, when it comes to understanding like this issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls and men and boys, really, I think the statistics that do exist paint a really disturbing picture. You know, in some Indigenous communities, the murder rate is 10 times higher than the national average. Wow. But there are also, I think, you know, we really don't understand the scale of the problem because of the lack of data, because there's kind of like a patchwork of jurisdictions that are keeping track of it. You know, there are, depending on where you are, if you're on a reservation, you know, and you call the police, you might have the tribal police respond or the BIA or the local county or, you know, it's in Jermaine's case, her family went to the tribal police and then went to the county police. And then eventually her, you know, a missing persons report was filed days later with the Missoula city police so I think that there are just so many jurisdictions that it makes it really difficult to compile the data. Yeah. You know, you now both work in this industry that covers missing women and girls, uh, the true crime podcast business, which might be part of the problem. You know, there are so many podcasts, true crime podcasts focused on white women and white girls and that are perhaps sensational in the wrong ways, even as the intentions of these podcasters, I'm going to assume, are noble what was y'all's thinking before you, as two women of color, set about making your shows that would live in this genre that some might consider problematic? Okay, so we it's I'm really glad to be doing this with Connie because one of the exercises we did was um, as we were developing the podcast, we were looking at the landscape and we were like, what do we want to sound like? What do we want to not sound like? And I won't name some of those shows we said we didn't want to sound like, but I will say one. Um, I don't know if you all have heard this, but The Onion has a parody podcast called A Very Perfect. Fatal Murder. What elevates a murder from a regular ho-hum killing to a crime so gruesome and compelling that it deserves its own podcast? And I was just like, I realized. I remember that one. Yeah, I'm like, it it's a parody. <laughs> That's not how I want to sound. But the Finding Cleo season of Missing and Murdered. To have your family member stolen, murdered, then missing. Oh, wait a minute. This is Cleo. Yeah. <gasps> oh, my gosh. We were just like, wow, this like really like in the same vein of what we're trying to do. And so, Connie, I would love to know how you went about it, because really, I think your work has really helped carve out 
this space for people of color and women of color to really tell the stories of our own communities. And I would love to know just kind of what your thought process was. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, I think really I've been learning through doing the work. And I think that, you know, what, what our goal is, is to try to kind of subvert the popularity of this genre, like like this insatiable appetite for true crime to tell bigger stories. I, you know, I, I think that for families, obviously, of Germaine, of Cleo's, of Alberta's, you know, that, that their stories have been so underreported and and sometimes even when they like in the case of Pamela George like really misrepresented their lives in in really harmful ways that they deserve to have the attention they deserve to have this concentrated effort this investigation to try to uncover something because you know for them often it's this last ditch attempt but the idea of kind of consuming their trauma and for as entertainment is something that really you know has I've really struggled with because we it is meant to be a compelling piece of of storytelling as well right we are we're trying to engage an audience and 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 bring people along while at the same time not losing sight of the real people at the heart of it and i think every true yeah. crime story has an opportunity to be about something bigger even the ones that seemingly focus on the violence yeah There are going to be a lot of people hearing this conversation saying to themselves, I'm on the side of justice. You know, when I see an alert about someone missing, I try to be part of the solution, not the problem. I want to be aware of these biases, etc. But to listeners like myself, even who like a good true crime podcast, what can we be doing differently to better address these disparities in the coverage and the rescue of missing girls of color i think on one hand it's good to engage critically um journalists we tend to just be curmudgeons and just have a distrust of most things and that's what makes us good at our job and so trust is a major part of this but i would say to the audience even you know kind of take everything with a grain of salt like think okay well what is the story i'm missing here what different angles could have been covered here that are missing. And I think people listen. I mean, we look at our mentions, we read the emails. When there's a real critique, people, at least people who want to improve, will acknowledge it in good faith and try to improve. So I think not only being an audience, but being an active audience is really helpful. For listeners, like I, I think it is is about, you know, thinking about the bigger picture of like as a whole what what are we being told about crime and who's affected by it in the stories that we're hearing and why is it that people are more interested in a missing white woman or a missing woman you know like missing men and boys also especially in indigenous communities are also disproportionately affected by violence and for some reason, it seems more palatable to to focus on on women and girls, and and why is that? And thinking about more importantly, like I think a store a question for the storytellers and for the reporters and the journalists who are in these spaces and sharing these stories, and thinking about how it's our duty to reflect the truth and the reality, and ask ourselves 
who are the the people who are disproportionately affected by violence? And is that reflected in in what we're doing and what we're covering and, and what people are reading? I also think like as journalists, we need to be like making space for these conversations. And I'm so grateful you guys are making space for this today, but also thinking about, you know, who gets to tell these stories and what are we doing to try to help empower you know, Indigenous people or, or Black people or people from other marginalized communities to to share their own stories that, that you know, we are the ones who are in the best positions to do it. Our lived experiences don't make us biased. It actually helps us improve and better reflect the communities that we come from. And we should be supported to do that in, in more than we are now. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I am honored to have had this chat with you both. And I thank you for the vital work that you're doing. Uh, it is necessary. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Thank Sam. you for having us. Thanks again to Connie Walker. She's the host and investigative reporter on the podcast Stolen, The Search for Jermaine. And Jonathan Hill is the host of the podcast Through the Cracks. You can find both of those shows wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this episode was produced by Anjali Sastry and edited by Jordana Hochman. Listeners, we're back in your feeds Friday. Till then, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.